The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. I invite you, as I said, to Revelation 19. So let's go ahead and go there. Uh, we did all of chapter 18 last week, and that was a mouthful. There's a lot of information. Some of you have told me that. Boy, this is a lot of information when you pack it all in in 24 verses in one sermon. Yeah, I know, I'm sorry. But it's narrative, it all goes together, it's hard to chop it up. Got to get the whole context. And uh, So yeah, it was kind of like drinking out of a, what, a fire hydrant at full blast? Yeah, I understand that. That hurts. Um, we're going to go a little slower, actually, 19 to 22. Because the text warrants that. And also, it's man, it's just amazingly encouraging good stuff. Uh, with the good news at the end. How human history and all of eternity ends with the glory of God. So we're going to slow down a little bit and we'll put it in fifth gear instead of sixth. How's that? Uh, Let's go ahead and look at Revelation 19. I didn't want to take two weeks to look at Revelation 19 because there are two distinctly different subjects, but they are related. Uh, So today I want to look at the first ten verses. So follow along with me as I read. This is out of the New American Standard, verses 1 through 10, keeping in mind that the last thing that happened in chapter 16 was the revealing of the seven bold judgments that happen at the end of the tribulation. And then in chapter 17 and 18, uh, God like zooms in very specifically on bowl number six and especially bowl number seven, where God promises to judge Babylon, the future world empire that opposes God that is yet to come. So that's actually what 17 and 18 is. It's a detailed expansion of God judging Babylon. So that's really in the seventh bowl judgment still. And the conclusion to that was is that God uh, totally annihilates uh, Babylon yet to come with the Antichrist and his false prophet and his entire religious and economic system, and it goes up in flames. And at the end of chapter 18, all you hear is nothing on earth. All noise has been eradicated. So you've got this sobering silence of God's judgment with nothing but smoke and burning ambers at the end of chapter 18. In a real way, that is the end of human history, but the beginning of a greater age to come. So in the midst of all this deafening silence, you've got this this burst and this bolt of awesome noise of praise from heaven. And that's how chapter 19 starts out. So let's go ahead and pick it up. Verses 1 through 10, starting at verse 1, John says, After these things, I, John the Apostle, heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. And as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he, the angel, said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, focuses on heavenly praise, loud heavenly praise, and also the beginning of the marriage supper of the Lamb and the marriage feast that goes along with the actual wedding. We're going to talk about what that is, the marriage Supper of the Lamb, a great and glorious event that all of world history really has been leading up to, especially if you're a Christian, you understand the Bible. You know where history is going. History has a goal and a purpose. And that's where it's headed towards this 
great heavenly eternal ceremony of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, before I go on in chapter 19, I wanted to read another passage from the Old Testament, which is what we've been doing, because so much of Revelation comes out of the Old Testament, a fulfillment of the Old Testament, uh, very specifically terminology, allusions, references. You can't fully appreciate and understand the book of Revelation without having a thorough grasp of the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament prophets. So I want to read from Ezekiel 16. If you have your Bible and you can go there, really important to follow along. So we're, here we are at Revelation 19. It's been like a year, uh, over 25, more than that, sermons. It's been a blessing for me. I've, I've gotten great feedback from the saints at our church. I've gotten uh, encouraging words. I've got also a lot of questions, some great questions from people. I'm confused, Pastor. That's what I think of your sermon. Oh, okay. It's all right. It's not an easy book. And this is not sometimes easy stuff to even comprehend. Even in me, I was struggling this week with all the details. And wow, when's this going to happen? And what does Scripture say about this? Sometimes Scripture is silent on something. And we want to know everything because that's how people are, humans. And God doesn't tell us everything. He only tells us what we need to know, not what we want to know necessarily. And that was true this week. But So I've been getting some great questions. And some of your questions have been challenging and actually forced me to go back to Scripture and study even more. So, But I did get a, a good question recently and it was about uh, Revelation 17 because all of chapter 17 in Revelation begins uh, Revelation 17 1 I will get to Ezekiel 16 uh, Revelation 17 begins with the judgment of the great harlot or prostitute really that's the word and throughout the entire chapter talking about her immorality and the Greek word porneia where we get pornography and keeps calling her the harlot the harlot the harlot and even Revelation 19 picks up with that theme uh, they're rejoicing because God has judged one of his enemies uh, it's a future world enemy. And in verse 2 of Revelation 19, it calls her the great harlot. God has judged the great harlot. Who is the harlot? And so I argued in Revelation 17 that the harlot primarily refers to and the harlotry and immorality of the future great harlot was false religion. Not primarily sexual immorality, but primarily false religion. Well, how do you come up with that, Pastor? And I'd say it's, it's based on the Old Testament. If you read through all the prophets... And Ezekiel 16 is an example. So Ezekiel 16, if you've never read this, it's quite intriguing because it's God talking to the nation of Israel after they had already turned their back on God as their covenant God. God married Israel. He, he betrothed Israel. Israel became God's beloved. Actually, even in the Old Testament, Israel is called God's bride. And God the Father is called the bridegroom of Israel. And then Israel turned out to be an unfaithful wife. And in the words of Scripture, committed adultery against God by worshiping other gods. So that's a theme of all the uh, Old Testament prophets, that when, you, when there is false religion, it is synonymous with adultery, prostitution, spiritually speaking. And that's exactly what Ezekiel 16 says. Uh, so look at Ezekiel 16. Just want to highlight a couple of verses there. Uh, Ezekiel 16, verse 4. God's talking to Israel, reminding them. This is after they cheated on God and went and got another many other husbands and were unfaithful and committed spiritual adultery. They were a harlot, acting like one. Uh, verse 4, he says, May I remind you, uh, as for your birth, Israel, when you were born, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, your umbilical cord, when you were just a little baby, helpless, who was it that helped you out? Rescued you, raised you, nurtured you, watched you grow. It was me, God, Yahweh. And then he, so this is a, a, a metaphor of Israel's growth and how God nurtured Israel into maturity. And then verse 8, Israel grew up as a nation. And then it says, God, God says, Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. You were ready to get married. And that's when I betrothed you. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. That's what God said to Israel. Verse 9, I bathed you. I cleansed you. Verse 11, I got you ready for wedding day because he says, And I adorned you with ornaments and bracelets, preparing her as it were, for the wedding day. Uh, verse 12, I put, a, I put a ring on you. Not on your left finger, but in your nose. Isn't that romantic? <laughs> That's what they did in those days. They still do that in the, in the East. Actually, they still do that in America today, more and more. <clears throat> I put a ring in your nose. Earrings in your ear. A beautiful crown on your head. Wedding day. Linen, silk, verse 13. That's the wedding dress. <clears throat> we got married. We were betrothed. Then you, you became a famous bride in verse 14. And then you got arrogant. 
in verse 15. This beautiful, precious bride that God raised up and prepared. And then you got arrogant, but you trusted in your beauty and you played the harlot. There it is. You became spiritually unfaithful and it's likened to being sexually unfaithful. Hence that word. So this is just one of many examples in the Old Testament where harlotry is synonymous with religious prostitution, religious and spiritual unfaithfulness. Verse 16, and you took some of your clothes that God gave him, made for yourself high places of various colors and played the harlot with other gods on them, which should never come about nor happen. So the wedding dress God made, they took it and turned it into an idol, worshiping false gods. Verse 17, you also took your beautiful jewels that God gave, made of my gold and of my silver, stuff he gave for the temple, which I had given you for true spiritual worship in the temple. And made for yourselves male, uh, male images that you might play the harlot. Spiritual prostitution. Unfaithfulness, spiritually speaking. Verse 18, then you took your embroidered cloth and covered them and offered my, my oil from the temple, from true religious worship, oil in the temple, and the incense there, and you offered it to false gods. You're a harlot. Get the point? Then on and on, verse 19, and also the bread, which was also in the temple for pure worship, was violated and sacrificed to false gods. And if you go to many other passages, uh, at Jeremiah chapter 2, I'm not going to go there, but I'm just telling you, in Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah 13, Isaiah 23, uh, the whole book of Hosea, all 14 chapters, Nahum chapter 3, and I could go on and on. Those are all specific indictments from God to Israel, calling them harlots, and he's referring to false religion. Hence, when we get to Revelation 17, when it says the great Babylon, Babylon the great is a harlot, primarily what it's talking about in Old Testament terminology, it is a religious system, a false religious system that is totally antithetical to true religion as we see given in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so God judges this world religion that will come in the future in chapter 17, and then God judges the entire economic system of this future coming kingdom that will have its headquarters in Babylon, and that. Uh, is the entire chapter of Revelation 18. God did that. He's going to judge Babylon in the future until it's totally decimated. And then as a result, God looks down from heaven with the angels, with the saints, and they don't mourn. They rejoice the devastation that God brought on this evil, wicked empire in the future. Hence, you've got five hallelujahs in Revelation 19 in the beginning, verses 1 through 10. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And then uh, translated another way in verse 5, give praise, which is exactly the same meaning as the Hebrew, hallelujah. So God is rejoicing, the angels are rejoicing, and God's people are all rejoicing from heaven at the devastation and judgment brought upon Babylon and also God's salvific work as a result through Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and look at it. Two main points that I want to highlight here out of Revelation chapter 19, 1 through 10. Uh, the first one is praise. This chapter is all, or this first 10 verses is all about praise, giving due honor and praise to the one in whom it belongs, and it is God and God alone. To God be the glory and only God be the glory. And uh, John has two main things we need to give God praise for, and that is his judgment upon the harlot. That's the first part. Verses 1 through 5. And then we need to praise God for preparing the bride. So we praise God for judgment and we also praise God for salvation. One is positive, one is negative. But they need to go together. That is so important. Because that is a true biblical picture of how believers are supposed to respond and worship God. We need to have the proper balance. We worship and praise God for being a just, righteous, holy God. And we also worship God for being a loving, merciful, gracious, forgiving, saving God. And they need to go together. And every false religion on planet Earth distorts that. They bifurcate it. They separate it. They either eliminate one altogether and just say, no, God is only love. There is no wrath. There is no judgment. There is no holiness. There is no hell in God. God is only love. That's Beatles theology. John Lennon, etc., etc., etc. All you need is love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could have wrote that song. That's easy. So Beatles theology, all you need is love. And then you've got the other extreme like Islam. And Islam emphasizes the judgment and the wrath of their God called Allah. And you know, you don't have a, a merciful God in Allah. Because did you know that in Islamic theology, there is no plan of salvation? Zip. There isn't one. There is no way that you, there is no gospel. There is no good news. They don't even use that terminology. Because there's no way in the world to definitively know in this lifetime if you are a faithful Muslim, if you're going to make it to heaven or not. You just don't know that. Because there's no plan of salvation. 
But in Christianity, there is a definitive plan of salvation. God laid it out. He revealed it. Here it is. It is objective. It is clear. It is simple, really, to understand. And that is that God is Savior. He's given the good news through the person of Jesus Christ, who is God in a body who came 2,000 years ago to grow up and live perfectly for 33 years and then to willingly go to the cross of judgment on behalf of sinners and as a substitute for sinners. And on the cross, Jesus willingly died, although he never committed any sin. He did it knowingly. It was his plan from all eternity. Jesus came down from heaven, died on the cross, and absorbed the holy wrath of God the Father on the cross all day long, not just physically, but spiritually. And as a result, a holy God who hates sin and must punish sin, when he poured out all of his wrath on Jesus, God was totally satisfied. Sin has been dealt with once and for all. Hence, Jesus said, it is finished. Tetelestai. Sin and salvation have been dealt with for all eternity through the work of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus gave up his last breath because he knew the work of salvation had been accomplished. Then he was buried. He was in the grave three days. He rose himself from the dead as Lord of lords and King of kings and ascended into heaven and reigns on high. Even this day as King of kings, it will come again. And anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior, as the one who died for the penalty of sin and believes that he absorbed God's wrath that you and I deserve for our sin and repents of their sin is saved in a moment of time, justified, totally clean. From God the Father's perspective, you are not guilty. If you believe that by faith, knowing that there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation, nothing I can do to impress God or earn His salvation. It is solely the work of Jesus Christ and faith in the gospel. If you understand that and you believe that, you will be saved. That is the Christian gospel. That is the good news. That is what every other religion on planet Earth does not have. It is where divine justice meets divine grace face to face perfectly in the incarnation of the risen Jesus Christ. So with that, that's what we have. We have this beautiful balance once again. We've got the judgment of God in verses 1 through 5 and the grace of God to his people in 6 through 10. So let's look at some of the highlights in the first part. God's judgment against sin and against evil. Here they are rejoicing up in heaven. Rejoicing. After these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice. After these things, after these things. That phrase is repeated all throughout the book of Revelation, starting in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And what you know what that means? After these things in the Greek text, that, that is a, an adverb of Time. It is an adverbial time marker. In other words, the book of Revelation is chronological and sequential. It is going in order. The reason that's important is you can pick up just about any study Bible except for a good couple of few. And they don't believe that the book of Revelation is chronological or sequential. But once again, John says, after these things. And he's referring to the future. After this, at the end of the seven-year tribulation. At the end of the seventh bowl judgment. At the very end of all of this, just before Jesus returns, this is what I saw because this is what's going to happen. I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. So there's this unidentified multitude in heaven, probably just all the angels, holy angels. Could be anybody else that's up there. It is just a massive, uncountable, unbelievable number of holy ones up in heaven. And they are singing. There's a lot of singing going on in heaven. We've seen that in Revelation, huh? And it's loud, too, because they notice the exclamation point at the end of hallelujah. It's not hallelujah. It's hallelujah. You can raise your hands. It's all right. (laughs) Hallelujah. Sometimes we don't even know what that means and we say it all the time. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Actually, it's a compound word. It's a transliteration preserved in the Greek from the Hebrew. It's a Hebrew word. Hallelujah. It's two words. Hallelujah. Praise Yah. Short for Yahweh. That's God's personal name. Praise God. Praise God. So... There's a translation of it in verse 5. Give praise to God. It's the identical phrase, just in a different language. So hallelujah means praise God. And it's actually a command. It is a beckon and a call and an imperative to God's people. Praise God with me for what He has done and who He is. And that's what's going on in heaven. All this silence on earth and all this noise in heaven. Hallelujah. Salvation. Notice what they're praising God for. First, it is salvation. God is a saving God. We need to praise God for being a saving God. And you know what? Every time God does a saving work, He saves His people out of calamity. He saves His people out of bad stuff. He saves His people from evil. Hence, that's why God's judgment and salvation always go together, inextricably so. And that's what's going on here. It's praise for God's salvation work, and He's saving His people, preparing them for the second coming of Christ. And how did He save them? He saved His people from the Antichrist. 
He saved his people from this false religious system in the future. He saved his people from this false, evil, wicked world. He saved his people from evil, wicked people who hated believers, who were going to hate believers in the future. So it's a double rejoicing. Rejoicing and saying, praise God for salvation and praise God for rescuing us from evil things and evil people. And that's that, that's the context here. And this is true all throughout the Old Testament. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So it's, it's hallelujah. Praise God for who he is, his character. Not just his character, verse 1, but also what he did, verse 2. Well, what did he do? Because his judgments are true and righteous. He, he judged. He is, we need to praise God for being the judge. We need to praise God for judging sin. We need to praise God for judging sinful people. Imagine that thought. Boy, that's controversial, isn't it? That is not politically correct. To praise God for judging sinful people? Whoa. So what it says, because his judgments are true, well, what, did he, what judgment? He just decimated the future world religion at the headquarters in Babylon and all the people in it. Laid it waste. And they're rejoicing in heaven because of it, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot, the future world empire with the Antichrist and all those wicked, evil people who hate believers. They were corrupting the earth with their immorality. And God has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. They weren't just involved in false religion. They are going to be murdering believers. That's what they do. They hate believers. And a second time, if that's not enough, well, that's heavy duty. And a second time, verse 3, they said, Hallelujah, praise God. For what? Get this. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Wow, they are praising God in heaven for the eternal judgment that is coming down on the future Babylon and all the evil, wicked people in it, including the Antichrist. Praise God for being a judging God. Can you imagine this concept? Praise God for being a, a wrathful God. Whoa. I mean, that's mind-boggling. It, it just defies human nature. It goes the, against the grain of the average unspirit-led human nature to praise God for being a God of wrath. That just that doesn't register, does not compute, does not... Syntax error, syntax error. Praise God for being a wrathful God. That's what it says right here. Hallelujah, praise God. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. So these holy ones in heaven are praising God in light of the fact that there is an eternal hell reserved for judging God's unrepentant enemies. You can't, there is no greater heavy duty doctrine in the Bible that is a mystery that defies the human mind than that. I remember one time I may have told the story when I, I preached a sermon on the wrath of God. We were in a, I was preaching with other pastors and we were in a series on the attributes of God. And I got dealt the wrath of God. Oh, cool. Thanks guys. I'll be the bad cop. Wow. And I did. I, this is the first time I ever preached a sermon on the wrath of God. And uh, then not long after that, there was a church that was interested in me as the pastor, teacher, senior pastor. And and they said, so I sent in my resume. I said, oh, it looks good. And then uh, they had many other resumes come in. They called me back and said, well, wow, we want to see, we want to hear your preaching now or see it, pref see it preferably. Do you have it on video? And I said, yeah, well, yeah, send us the most recent sermons you've done. It just so happened I just got finished preaching on the wrath of God on video. Um so I sent it in and didn't hear anything for months and months when there was regular ongoing contact and I finally got back, contacted the church. So so where am I at in the standings? Well, you man, you were right up there, top three. And then we got your sermon. You're, you're, not, you're not a candidate with us anymore. Really? Wow. Well, how come? And here's a quote. Well, you just weren't funny enough. That's what I did. I went... <gasps> So they got my sermon on the wrath of God and, and the response, you, you're not a candidate because you just weren't funny enough. And then the next sentence, I'll never get over it. Our people, they like to laugh. And I said, well, did you consider the topic of my sermon? <laughs> it was the wrath of God. I didn't see anything funny about it or to laugh about. Well, yeah, you know, but well, you know, but, and I said, it's not like I preach on that every week. It was, we were going through a series and that's the one. And you asked me for my most recent sermon and that was it. It's in, it's in the Bible. No, I'm sorry. We just, we want a light-hearted, jovial, happy pastor. It's like, okay. I said, and then I said, well, I'm funny. That <laughs> wasn't, it was too late. Click. <laughs> but it was sad. I just went away thinking, wow, how, how sad is that? Uh, we don't want to hear about the true God who, yes, he's a God of love and mercy, but he's a holy God and a God of wrath. And he needs to be recognized 
accordingly. And that's what this whole passage is about. So the, the holy ones in heaven rejoice. Praise God with me, believers and angels, worshiping our God totally for who He is, everything about Him. That's why J.I. Packer's book is such a great book on knowing God. Because he systematically says very clearly in, that whole, in a very balanced way everything that is true about God. He doesn't just say, love, 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 mercy, mercy, mercy. He talks about the holiness and the wrath of God and does it beautifully to give us a full-orbed, comprehensive picture of the true God of the universe that we can have a personal, intimate relationship with. When you have a personal, intimate relationship with somebody, don't you want to get to know everything about them? That's why you like have dating and engagement and all that stuff, trying to get to know the real person when they're not always on their good behavior, right? That's why, kids, you should be engaged for like seven years. No, I'm, I'm just kidding, but... The whole point is, and, and betrothal, engagement is a biblical concept, getting to know that person fully, completely for who they are. Very important. We need, how much more do we need to do that with the true God of the universe? Verse 4, and there's more praise going on from another crowd. So we've got this unnamed multitude praising God for His wrath. Verse 4, and then the 24 elders chime in. The 24 elders around the throne of God and the four living creatures, probably these angelic beings with six wings, protecting the holiness of God. And they just fall down in the midst of this praise. They fall down and they worship God. They're falling down all the time throughout the book of Revelation. And they worship God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. We agree with you. Amen means yes, it is so. Yes, it is undeniable. And when somebody says, well, God's not a God of wrath. God doesn't get angry. You can say right here, amen. Yes, it is so. He is too. It's undeniable. Hallelujah. Praise him. Verse 5. And a voice came from the throne saying, so here's another voice. So you got three different voices. This unnamed multitude. And then the 24 uh, elders and the four living creatures. And then this third uh, voice of praise in verse 5. And a voice came from the throne. So it's from the direction of the throne. This isn't Jesus or God the Father. Uh, this is from the direction of the throne, from the center of the throne. Another unidentified voice comes out and says, give praise to our God. And that's in a different language, but it means hallelujah. Hallelujah. Interesting note. Uh, hallelujah is used 24 times in the book of Psalms, starting in around Psalm 104 all the way up to about Psalm 117. And then again at the end in the 130 uh, and then 145, I think. 24 times the word hallelujah is used in Psalms. I would say most of the time, hallelujah is used in reference to God as a righteous God of judgment. Isn't that interesting? So it's right out of the Old Testament. Right out of the Old Testament. Uh, and a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you bondservants, every believer, you who fear Him, the small and the great. That is awesome. So we had a great privilege, even during some of our songs, to sing hallelujah and praise to God for who He is and what He has done, including His righteous, just, holy judgment. God's going to rectify everything. Vengeance is mine. He's going to make every wrong right. It's a promise from God. How encouraging is that? Let's go on to uh, the more positive stuff, 6 through 10. Uh, And we need to praise God, not just for being a righteous judging God, but also His salvific work. Specifically, praise God for preparing the bride, preparing specifically the church of Jesus Christ for her wedding day. If you're a Christian, you're a part of the church. You're a part of the body of Christ. If you're a Christian, you are part of, you are the bride of Christ. And someday you will be married to literally Jesus, your husband. Jesus, the bridegroom. The only perfect husband in the history of the world. And someday his precious bride is going to be perfect as well. But right now, the church, the bride, we ain't perfect. We are being prepared for the wedding day. We still have to, we're in the betrothal period. We got some growing up and maturing to do. We're not old enough to get married yet. We're only 11. We've got to wait till we're 33 or whatever it is. And so that's what church history is. God is preparing the church to marry Jesus. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. I will prepare my bride. And I'm going to take time doing it. I'm going to do it one soul at a time. And I'm going to make her look just how I want her to look. Perfect in every respect. So that's what 2,000 years of church history has been right now, is a time of betrothal and preparation. Because God is, Jesus is marrying the church not just for the millennium or a few years. It is for eternity. Imagine that. If you are a Christian, you are the bride of Christ, you are engaged to Jesus, you will be married to Him for all eternity. Literally. Seriously. How encouraging is that? Maybe you're single and you want to be married. and One of my dearest friends... 
She's single and she's probably 67, 68. I've known her for 20 years. And Christians have always been telling... She's, and she, from the time she was two, she wanted to get married. And here she is like 67. And pastors keep telling her, well, you must have the gift of singleness. She says, well, if it's a gift, I want to give it back. Because I don't like it. At least she's honest. May not get married in this lifetime, but it's the desire of her heart. No, you, you will be married, my dear friend. You'll be married to the perfect husband eternally, Jesus Christ. So you've got to be comforted by those. Those are real words. Amen. This is real stuff. It's real. Just because it didn't happen now or yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen. This is as sure as anything. This blessed wedding. I do want to read a passage just to show you the lengths that Jesus is going to to prepare his bride. And how we're actually a part of it, this preparation period. We are preparing ourselves and God is empowering us to be prepared by him for the wedding day. Because when you're a bride, it takes a long time to get ready, doesn't it? We've been standing in the mirror for 2,000 years fixing our hair. And that's still not enough time. So look at Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5 where Jesus talks about explicitly how he's preparing the church, his bride, for the wedding day. Uh, starting at verse 4, there's one body and one spirit. It says, okay, so God created the church at Pentecost, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For, for a wedding day, to be married to Jesus. In verse 7, part of that is God is giving spiritual gifts to individual believers to help prepare the bride corporately. Every Christian has a spiritual gift to utilize in the preparation period by helping edify the body of Christ, Jesus' precious bride. Verse 10, then Jesus, after he died and rose, ascended into heaven, he gave the Holy Spirit and gave gifts to every Christian to help them help the preparation of the corporate body of Christ for her wedding day. Verse 11 and here are some of the spiritual gifts he gave to the church to help her prepare for the wedding day. And God gave to the church as gifts, some as apostles, some as prophets. That was in the early days and laid the foundation. And then he also gave evangelists, those who share the gospel, and also church planters. And then once the churches are planted, he gave pastors who are shepherds and overseers of the church. And then also in the church you have teachers. What do they do? That's the leadership. Verse 12, they equip the saints. That's every other Christian. So that the saints, every Christian can do the work of service or the work of ministry. For the purpose of what? To the building up of the body of Christ. To preparing and building up and helping the bride become mature so she can marry Jesus. That is the whole point. Well, who cares about my gift? Why do I need a gift? Because Jesus wants to get married to his bride and you're a part of the process. That's why. So what it says right here. Building up the body of Christ, verse 13, it's going to take a while until, it's going to take a while, 2,000 years so far, until we all in the body of Christ, as Christ's bride, attain to the unity of faith. What's one of the marks of maturity for the bride of Christ is unity. So as, this is very helpful as pastors and elders. When we see disunity in the flock, among professing believers, among the members, ooh, we have immaturity. Disunity is one of the clearest marks of immaturity, spiritually speaking. One of the clearest marks of maturity is unity among the saints. Unity in the truth. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So this full knowledge of God to a mature man, to a mature, really, to a mature bride. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, Jesus will only be content with a perfect bride because he is a perfect bridegroom. Verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children. Quit being divisive and divided and petty. That's what he's saying. You need to be a unifying Christian in the truth. Quit acting like an immature little kid. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. There it is. There it is. Unity in love. We are to grow up, get mature in all aspects into Christ, who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted together and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth. See, every individual part causes the growth. We can't do it without every... Every Christian has got to participate in this unifying, preparing process for Jesus' wedding day. Causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And then look at chapter 5 real quick, starting at verse 25. Jesus' wedding day, what he's doing. He's preparing his bride. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, because the church is his bride. He is engaged to the church. He is engaged to his bride. Currently, right now, Jesus, verse 26, he is sanctifying his bride. He's preparing his bride. He's trying to make her holy. That is in process right now. That's what Jesus is doing with us, corporately and individually, as Christians and as the church. Preparing the bride. 
that He might sanctify her. His goal, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the Word. So the process started with salvation. It culminates after sanctification and glorification. Verse 26, in order that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the Word. 27, in order that, here's the purpose, that He might present to Himself who presents the bride this day and gives her away. Jesus could literally say her father and I or, yeah, me. He's preparing for himself. Oh, that he might prepare for himself the church in all her glory. Boy, the church is going to look glorious someday. The beautiful, precious bride of Christ. His precious bride. If you're a Christian, you're a part of being the bride of Christ. Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and blameless. That's the ultimate goal. Right now, we're not there yet, are we? We're in process, aren't we? We're we're not as beautiful and flawless as we need to be to be presentable to Jesus Christ, but we're in process. And nevertheless, Jesus has this eternal love for us as His precious bride. And as a result, uh, we're really the apple of His eye all the way until wedding day. So let's go ahead and look at some of the other details in this passage, uh, starting at verse 6 in Revelation 19, look into this wedding day. Uh, and I heard, as it were, this wedding day is going to be in the future. The voice of the great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder sang. So now the hallelujahs keep going, but there's a different theme. The previous hallelujahs were praise God for His judgment on sin. This is praise God for the great work that He's been doing and culminates at the end of the tribulation with the coming of Jesus Christ. So that's why verse 6 says, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. Praise God for what? For the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. That's the beginning of His millennial reign. At the end of the seven years of tribulation is when Christ begins His 1,000 year reign on the earth. Fulfilling His prayer in Matthew chapter 6 when He told His believers to pray. Pray this way, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's when this prayer is answered. Literally. Heaven will come down to earth in the form of the millennium on earth when Jesus will reign for 1,000 years in glory with His saints. And that's what they're rejoicing at, the the prospect that this is imminent now, now that the tribulation is over. Our God reigns. And then Revelation 5.10 says that Jesus will reign on the earth. This isn't in the sky. This isn't ethereal in the heavens where you can't see it. It is on earth. That's why all millennialism doesn't work. Because they're trying to tell us, well, get, we, the millennium's going on right now. It's been going on for 2,000 years. Yippee! I'm looking around the world. I was like, I don't have any yippies for what's going on in the world in my life around me. Because it's actually horrific. It's a cursed earth. I'm looking for something better. Well, it will. It will be on earth. And we can say, hallelujah, the Lord God is going to reign on earth as Jesus initiates His reign on the earth and it even goes into eternity. And as a result, God, uh, the heavenlies... Uh, The holy ones in heaven call everybody else to rejoice. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. Why about this reign? Well, for the marriage of the lamb that has come. So that's what begins this uh, this rejoicing, this kingdom on earth is when Jesus finally marries his bride. So they rejoice at the wedding. So in verse seven, you've got when Jesus marries his bride and then in the Jewish culture, even in John's day. You had the wedding event. Actually, it was a, a big deal leading up to the wedding event. You had all these stages and phases. If you study the, the book of Song of Solomon, all eight chapters, it, it's in phases of a Jewish wedding. You've got the preparation. You've got the betrothment, which is a formal period. You've got uh, all the guests and everybody else that's being invited and everything laid out. And then you've got uh, the bridegroom and the bride being prepared and this great march towards one another as the event reaches this crescendo and then you've got the actual ceremony and then after that you've got the feast you've got the reception to the wedding that lasts for days and days and even weeks in jewish cultures in that day weeks can you imagine being the father of the bride and having to pay for that <laughs> Whew, i'm glad i'm an american and they're only one day one afternoon get it over with what a bill so that's what you got going here is this marriage supper. you got the preparation and betrothal period, which has been going on for 2,000 years. I believe the actual wedding event where uh, the bride is united with Jesus Christ, I believe it, it begins at the rapture when believing saints are raptured up to Christ and glorified with Him. And like I said, it is in phases. And then more and more people keep getting added to the wedding party who are a bride of Christ, believers really of all time. 
So that's so you've got the wedding union and ceremony itself that I believe happens in heaven. That's verse 7. But then you've got the celebration after. Verse 9, the marriage supper. So you've got the wedding in verse 7 and the marriage feast or supper celebrating that wedding in verse 9. And that supper goes on not just in heaven when it begins, but then uh, the celebration continues, Colossians 3, 4, when Jesus comes back with the glorified church, when we are in our resurrected bodies with our white raiment, which is a legitimate pass and entry into the wedding union with Christ. And we're riding on horses of glory with Christ and we come to the earth and we rule with Christ for 1,000 years on earth during the kingdom. And that entire 1,000 years is a celebration of the feast, of the marriage, of the Lamb to His bride. Christians will be there. That was the promise of Revelation 3.20 when Jesus spoke to the overcomer, to, to faithful Christians, to Him who overcomes. If you're an overcomer and faithful and you know Jesus Christ, you're going to be, you're going to be invited to the marriage supper and the feast of the Lamb. That, you will come in and sup with me. That's what it's talking about. The marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 3. And the, the celebration of this marriage supper goes on for an entire thousand years. And not only that, clearly it goes on, Revelation 21, it, it goes on into the new heavens and new earth for all eternity. Because marriage is forever. Marriage is eternal. That's why. So when is the marriage supper of the Lamb? You can't just isolate it to one event. It begins with the union of Christ with His bride and goes on through the millennium and all through eternity. Amazing. And what God has brought together, let no man put asunder. And Jesus will will fulfill that perfectly. Uh, so it goes on, verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad. Uh, give glory to God for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. It's time. Uh, the union really probably began with the rapture and then it will even highlight even more when Jesus returns at His second coming and joins even more with more of His believing saints, those who are alive on the earth at the end of the tribulation who believe in Him like those who have been preserved in the desert for three and a half years we saw in Revelation chapter 12. So the body of Christ, the bride of Christ is going to keep growing and growing incrementally in phases just like the resurrection of Christ happens in phases, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Just like the coming of the Messiah came in phases. The Old Testament believers, they didn't understand that. They, they thought there was one coming of a Messiah. That's it. They had no concept of two comings. Of the first time coming as the lowly lamb and then a second glorious coming that the whole world will see as the mighty reigning lion. They did not understand. It was all one event in their mind. But it came in phases. And that's exactly what happens with the marriage feast or the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there's going to be great celebration. Verse 7 goes on. The marriage supper of the Lamb has come and His bride, His precious bride, has made herself ready. The glorious, precious bride of Christ. I love the church. I, I think that's one of the reasons why I like to be a pastor. I love the church. I believe I'm actually spending my time investing in something that is precious to God and will last for all eternity. The Steelers will not last for all eternity. Not good enough. But the church, the precious bride of Christ, goes on into eternity. And you know what breaks my heart is today when I read a lot of contemporary evangelical, well-meaning Christian authors who slam the church in their books all the time. That's actually a, an earmark or a definitive earmark of the emerging church movement. I know because I've read the books. I've read a, countless. And that's the new evangelical movement that's been actually has been going on for 10 years. And it is commonplace to take a pot shot at the church and all her foibles and all her weaknesses. And all, we gotta change things and we gotta do things differently. We can't, can't do what the Bible says. Blah, 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 blah. Cause picking on the bride of Christ. I was just like, whoa, that is dangerous. Do not mess with the bride of Christ. Man, when you mention the church word, look out. That's Jesus' girlfriend. He's pretty strong. Don't mess with my girlfriend. And I'm serious about that. The precious bride of Christ. Verse 8. And it was given to the bride. It was given to the church. This will be fulfilled someday for you and me as Christians. This is going to happen. This is where we're headed. This is awesome. And it was given to her to clothe herself. Every woman's dream or many of them is to get that wedding dress and to get a beautiful one, to get one that fits, right? And that's what's going to happen here. The bride of Christ is going to get a dress. And some of you Christian guys, maybe you five, fifth graders or sixth graders who are Christians, you don't want a dress, right? 
I don't want to dress. No, you're going to, you're the, you're part of the bride of Christ, spiritually speaking. All it means is you're going to be prepared to marry Jesus. Verse eight. And it was given to the bride to clothe herself in fine linen. That's heavenly linen, by the way. Bright and clean. That refers to the forgiveness of sin we have before God. We are totally sinless, totally holy, perfected and glorious in Christ on the wedding day. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints that God has empowered us to do. Verse nine. And he said to me, Right. So this ain't. So again, John is just like in awe while he puts his pen down or his scroll or whatever he's writing with. Wow. Whoa. Are you serious? This is cool. Whoa. And his tongue's hanging out of his mouth. And then the angel has to hey, get back to writing. Write this down and share it so everybody else can enjoy it, too. He's done this a few times. John, wake up. Write. He said to me, write. Here's another blessing. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Well, who's invited? Well, I think the bride's invited, right? Usually the bride is invited to the wedding. I did a lot of deep thinking this week. Let's think, okay, who gets invited to weddings? Usually the bride is invited. Okay, good. But also specifically the guests. So this could be actually uh, those who are not specifically the bride of Christ, the church. Others will be invited. Uh, that could include holy angels. That can include uh, people who trust in Jesus during the tribulation when the church has already been raptured. That could include people who get saved during the millennium. I would say anybody that's a holy one up in heaven at that time in the future, is going to be invited by God's specific request. Come to the marriage supper of the feast. And if you do, you are blessed. If you do, you are holy. If you do, you're invited. You are welcomed and totally sinless. And have just a blessed future of eternity really ahead of you. And, and he said to me, these are the true words of God. John, you can really believe this. You can believe the Bible. You can take revelation at face value. Verse 10. Man, look at John. He is so overwhelmed and awed by the truth of this angel who is disseminating the revelation. John gets a little confused. He wants to give glory to somebody and he gives glory to the closest moving thing in his presence and it's the angel. And it says, John, and I, John, I fell down at his feet to worship the angel. That was inappropriate. That's idolatry. That's wrong. And the angel does the right thing. He rebukes sin clearly when he sees it. He doesn't let it slide. He doesn't dismiss it. Even an apostle... Uh, and he said to me, see, this is a good example of the fact that uh, those who wrote the Bible were not perfect. They were not without error. They were not sinless. But the byproduct of what they wrote is perfect, without error, sinless. Scripture is inspired by God. And he used frail, sinful, weak people to do it. Here's an example. John blew it. He's about to worship this angel. That's idolatry. And so the angel says to him, John, no, don't do that. Stop worshiping me. Let go of my foot or my wing. I am a fellow servant of yours. I'm a fellow doulos of yours. I'm a fellow slave of yours. I think this is one of the only times, if not the only time in the Bible, that holy angels are called doulos. That's one of God's favorite terms for a believing Christian or a believer, a slave. Jesus is Lord and Master. We are slaves of Him. Did you know that angels are also slaves? Because they, they simply are entitled to obey one person. It is Jesus and God, the Master. Uh, so this angel acknowledges, boy, and what camaraderie So we have there with holy angels. We are equally servants, bond slaves, or slaves before God and Jesus. I'm just like you. I'm just an angel. I'm a servant. I'm a minister of righteousness, fellow servant, fellow slave of yours, and also of your brethren, fellow believers who hold the testimony of Jesus. I'm just giving you revelation that God gave me just like you, John, as apostle, give revelation when God gives it to you. You're not great. I'm not great. Only God, the, the giver of revelation, is great. John, you need to understand that. And that's what he's talking about. And that's how he concludes verse 10. Worship God. Worship God and Him alone. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So what the angel is saying, I, I'm not the giver of the revelation. I'm simply the conduit of the revelation. God has entrusted me with the spirit of prophecy. The Holy Spirit is working through me to give revelation. The same with you, John. We do the same thing. But it is the Holy Spirit who is the originator of the prophecy. Don't confuse that. As a result, John only worshiped God. So John needed to be corrected on his angelology, his theology of an angel, which reminds me, I was watching two weeks ago on that incident that happened, I think it was Arizona, where there was the shooting going on and six people got killed and somebody was trying to assassinate a political official there and the aftermath of it all and some innocent people got killed and died and they had some of the funerals uh, on television. It was sad. It was terribly tragic. And what was really sad is there was a little girl. She must have been like seven or eight years old. They had her read a testimony. I think it was about her mom who died. 
during the funeral. And very gracious and wonderful words she said. But one thing she said that kind of jumped out at me, she says, and, and I'm okay with the fact that she died because I know she's in heaven and now she's turned into an angel. And I, th- I didn't think that was cute. I thought, wow, how sad. But you know how, how common that is in our world, right? We want to believe the best. We, we are either ignorant of the truth or we choose to deliberately shy away or dismiss the truth. And so this little girl has been led astray to think that anybody that dies turns into an angel. But that's very common, bad theology. And it was just a reminder to me, Jesus said, know the truth and the truth will set you free. And as parents, we need to do that with our children. Uh, don't shy away from the truth with children. If they ask what happens to a person when they die, you tell them the truth, right? To set them free about reality. Lay the foundation of reality, stability in their life. Well, you either go to heaven or hell. Those are the only two options, honey. And I want you to go to heaven. And here's how you can go to heaven. There's only one way. It's through Jesus, believing in his gospel, admitting you're a sinner, uh, coming to God, asking him to save you. And you need to know that even as a seven-year-old. And if you reject that truth and entrust yourself and deny God, when you die, you will be punished in hell forever. Even children can comprehend and can understand that truth. I know they can. Because I've baptized people when they're 32. When did you get saved? I clearly understood the gospel when I was four years old. It's like, wow. That is awesome. Well, anyway, with that, let's go ahead and pray and, and thank God for the truth of His Word. Father, we do thank You for the, the privilege to gather with the saints, the treasure of Your Word. God, I thank You that You chose throughout history to, to work through weak and sinful people. You always do, and You even do that today with us uh, in helping build the church by empowering us with a gift to serve. We do it imperfectly. We do it many times compromised, but You're the great God of salvaging what we feebly offer to you and you make it great and just remind us of that great truth father thank you for being so gracious in doing that thank you for the truth in revelation 19 good news is coming you're you're preparing a glorious day of your wedding the greatest event in the history of the world and we get to be a part of it if we know you personally thank you for that blessed truth god encourage our hearts this week about reality when we get drowned in the things that are just before us, we get myopic and we get our eyes off of Jesus and off of heaven, off of Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. God, help us through your spirit and your truth to keep our gaze on you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit GBF sv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.